Welcome back to the program. When we think about building today, almost anywhere on the planet, be it a house or a gleaming glass, steel, and concrete office building, we almost reflexively think about how the building was built and how green was the process. Market forces have made green building a premium to be desired and even paid for. But this didn't happen by magic. It happened primarily because one man saw the need to make this his life's work. He's David Gottfried. David Gottfried is the founder of the World Green Building Council and the U.S. Green Building Council. He's the CEO of Regenerative Ventures. He's the author of the previous books, Greed to Green and Greening My Life. It is my pleasure to welcome David Gottfried to the program today to talk about his newest work, Explosion Green, One Man's Journey to Green the World's Largest Industry. David Gottfried, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here with you and everybody else. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about how this idea evolved for you, how the whole business of of green building really became your life's work, essentially. You know, it started probably first by being a backpacker, and uh, I grew up in L.A. as well, and we, uh, given my age, I remember the water crisis we had in the 70s, and then later the oil crisis where we would line up for gasoline, and then was a backpacker, and in backpacking, your motto is what you carry in, you carry out, and you start learning about nature and, and man and ecological footprint and the connection. Next, I went to Stanford, became a resource engineer, and had a phenomenal professor who opened our eyes, uh, Gil Masters, and taught us about the state of the world and the vital signs of Earth and uh, early discussions on climate change uh, a, a lot of decades ago. Talk a little bit about the building industry itself and and where it was in those days with respect to some of these ideas. The early days when I started as a real estate developer in the early 80s, those were still what we call the go-go 80s of the era of the movie Wall Street. And buildings were very much steeped in, in growth, in putting out buildings as fast as you could. That's before the economy then crashed. But uh, the emphasis was on building more, taller buildings, bigger buildings, fancier buildings, and uh, that was in the commercial arena. Uh, We were rezoning land to go from agricultural to the ability to build shopping centers and large developments. So growth is embedded in real estate, and certainly growth in rents, growth in product, growth in square footage, growth in profitability. The ecological side had just started in the 80s as a reaction to tightening up our buildings uh, because of the 70s energy crisis. We wanted to make buildings tighter so they had less leaky air. But we also brought in less fresh air uh, because we'd have to condition that air and they didn't want to do that. And that created sick building syndrome with all the adhesives and off-gassing. So then we had energy efficiency plus indoor air quality. We had started to recycle in the 80s. That was a third element. If it glued them all together, you could get green building. But that started in the 80s, rolled into the 90s, and here we are now with it hitting mainstream. And what kind of resistance did you run into early on from the industry to some of these ideas? 
Well, we had some great resistance from even major groups, some that you would think would get involved right away. But there's a lot of turf fighting in the building industry. We're very segmented. The architecture groups think they're the designers of the building. They don't always talk to the engineers or the tenants or the utilities or the scientists. Um, there are also other groups, uh, the real estate, some trade organizations who had had it with sick building syndrome and asbestos and then leaky tanks and didn't want to take on another group and another environmental issue which they saw could be uh, raising of costs, maybe risks, schedule and projects. So there's just a lot of resistance to change. And one of the first places that you were able to have some success was in Japan. Tell us about that. Yeah, there was a fellow in Japan who early on had come to our opening meetings of the U.S. Green Building Council. He had studied our lead green building rating system, and he had fire in the belly to take that back to Japan. So the second Green Building Council I helped found in the world was in Japan in 98 on Earth Day. I stood on a stage in Tokyo through reverse translation, which is impossible. Uh, I announced uh, not only the welcoming of the Japan Green Building Council, but I figured as a younger man, hey, I had the U.S. and Japan. I'll now found the World Green Building Council. It's just amazing. Many years later, we now have Green Building Councils in over 100 countries. And talk a little bit about the Green Building Council itself and what it's set up to do, what its mission and goals are. Sure, it started with the U.S. Green Building Council and our lead system now more than 20 years ago, and it invented the GBC model that we then took overseas, and each GBC has a roadmap, so they're held together by a framework of conditions. It requires their nonprofit, not for-profit. It requires that they're open to all sectors of the building industry and beyond, it requires they have a board of directors and a budget and that they have a mission of education and transformation. Uh, many of these green building councils adopt a rating tool and a guideline for green building. LEED became the biggest in the world, now in 140 countries being used. I think we've signed international deals with about 30 countries. But many other countries created their own rating system and the world GBC is rating system neutral. So we have England had the BRIAM system, the first in the world. Australia did Green Star, licensing it to New Zealand and South Africa. Uh, we have CASB in Japan, and now we have Three Star in China. So many of them will have a rating tool. They'll have an annual conf conference to teach. Ours became Green Build. Uh, which has about 30,000 people each year. Last year, Philadelphia. This year, in October, you can join us in New Orleans. And all these GBCs are sharing and pulling these principles together. The rating tools have pretty much five or six common elements in them across the globe. Energy efficiency, that you don't waste energy. Clean energy generation, like solar water efficiency and conservation and capture. You have materials, you have health, because buildings have a big health impact on the products uh, that they make they, and the occupants, site, transportation, 
and, and waste and recycling. Those are some of the ingredients of green building. And what is the nexus between these green building criteria and what we hear about with respect to LEED certification? Well, LEED is the rating tool and guideline and third-party certification invented by the U.S. Green Building Council. And so uh, that's pretty much uh, our defining piece of the USGBC, though we're a lot broader. Um, and LEED is owned by the USGBC, and then anybody in the world can use it if they follow the guidelines and the certification process. LEED is a free guideline to define green building in these categories, uh, which you can download at usgbc.org. There's many versions of LEED, but then uh, if you want to certify, you pay a registration fee, and you have to submit a huge body of documentation to prove that you did all those elements that you're claiming the credits for, and then they're third-party verified, and we have LEED certified silver, gold, and platinum. And tell us a little bit about how all of this is being incorporated by architects and engineers into architecture and design today, both on a commercial and a residential level. In the U.S., if you're an architect and you don't know about LEED or some of these green building standards, in California we have a green home rating called Build It Green, and Greenpoint rated is a system. You're pretty negligent if you're not into green building. It's, it's rolling into curriculums at the schools. The, we have over 200,000 professionals have taken the lead exam and the green associate. So it's just imperative as an architect to understand the materials you're specifying and the health and environmental impact, to understand the lighting impact of the glazing and daylighting, how it moves through the space, and even the impact of glare and productivity to the occupants. It's imperative to understand all the systems and components and the envelope of the home or the building. Do, do the windows, do the walls, do they leak? Are they insulated? Uh, do you have natural shading? What about natural ventilation and windows, the siding of the building? Uh, all of these issues come together in green building, and it's really about the quality of your design. And this sh should come into play in a small renovation, in a new home, in a big building, in a school. Uh, I say even I can green a dog's house. And what impact is it having in a broader sense, as you've seen it, in terms of design itself? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, Jeff. Uh, I believe green and sustainability regeneration is the essence of design. There's also aesthetic, but your aesthetic shouldn't compete with making it effective, efficient, healthy, uh, durable, and having longevity. As an engineer, which I am, if there's waste in a system, then the system is broken. And if you're a designer and you're designing long-term waste in your design because it's slapping the whole facade into the desert sun with poor glazing and doesn't take into consideration uh, that sun and the heat impact and health and productivity of the people inside, then that's a negligent design. 
and that'll be a design problem for the life of that home that you built with a, a western-facing facade that's all glass and no overhang. And so you really, in design, have to take into consideration the intended purpose and the, the next 30 to 50 years. And if you're not looking at energy, water, health, waste, uh, comfort, productivity, then you really don't understand design. It's not just about something that's pretty. There's a new definition of beautiful, and that's understanding nature and the future of, of humans and their relationship with nature. Is there a conflict that you're seeing between all of this work that's going into design and architecture of both homes and commercial buildings and the things that are going into those buildings, which still rely in large measure on, on more traditional furnishings, more traditional equipment, and a kind of planned obsolescence? Yeah, there's a real tension uh, in even in, in business. I was staring at some packaging recently and wondering, why do they make it like that? It was a cereal box, and as we all know, if you have kids, they want the cereal, hopefully low sugar, low gluten or no gluten. But you open the thing up if you can, and there's no way to seal it back. And you wonder, do they want it to go stale? <laughs> and, you know, same in some of our building products. Is it really built for durability? Are they looking at the ingredients of the products that are in those building materials that we're putting in our furniture, in our bedding, in our couches, in our homes, in our paint, in our adhesives. Um, there's now, we call them red lists, uh, of banned materials that some rating systems are looking at. That concept came out of the EPA and, and even the UN. And we're asking deeper questions. What's the cereal box label for the paint? and not the traditional disclosures. We want to go deeper. And then many entities and some rating systems are saying, we don't want XYZ inside our paints in our carpets and, and going deeper. What are we seeing worldwide? Where is the real cutting edge of some of this work taking place right now? Green building is global. As I mentioned, we have over 100 green building councils uh, as we run around the world, you see just great activity all over the place. Uh, China's got the three-star system, which is pretty new. They still use LEED more than us. They have, I believe they're in their 12th five-year plan. China's already producing more solar panels and wind than any country in the world, significantly. And uh, as much as they're using coal and polluting and hurting their rivers at the same time, they've gone deep in renewable energy and LED lighting. In in Germany, you see great codes and, and rating tools. Uh, Germany was one of the first countries to look at daylighting. They had a law almost 20 years ago saying no one can sit in a building uh, more than seven meters from a window, so about 21 feet. Um, they had something called bow biology getting into the early off-gassing of products and, and health. Holland, there's a lot of good work. England, Australia, deep into energy. Uh, in Australia, I remember seeing a home 
labeling system when you sold your home, you had to disclose the energy consumption. They're also real proficient in water because they've almost run out of water in, in Queensland. Uh, so there's a lot of good features. Uh, the CASB system in Japan was the first to have BIM building integrated modeling embedded in the rating tool, and no one else in the world had done that. Australia, in their Green Star tool, they regionalized it, so different bioregions had different rating uh, credits. That uh, They also banned PVC in their system, as did the EU. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of good work. I believe there's more green buildings probably in the U.S. than anywhere in the world, but even still, there's a lot for us to learn from the other countries and what they're doing. Does this movement have enough momentum on its own right now, then, to be sustainable, or does it require constant vigilance on the part of, of these various councils and, and the people that you work with? I'm a strong advocate of the carrot and the stick, and I believe those are germane and, and imperative to growing the green revolution. I think on our own we get lazy and go back to old, easier standards and that we have to not only push ourselves all the time, we need government to push us, regulation, we need the incentives of, real, uh, of tax credits, whether it's in our real estate bills, in our uh, allowing us to build greater density because we went deeper green or get a building permit faster as San Francisco had for the city. When you were lead gold, you could go to the front of the permit line. Uh, New York State had a tax credit. We had in Nevada a real estate tax credit for a third off your real estate taxes. Uh, we need all of that as well as better codes and standards. We need to be pushed hard, but you need incentives. And what's real exciting is the marketplace is showing that green buildings lease up faster, they have lower expenses for water, energy, and waste, they have higher net income, they even have better sales prices. But even still, we have to push at, at all levels, whether it's the carrot or the stick. How is technology aiding this process? I love technology. We're here in the Bay Area. Uh, there's so much innovation with venture capital, with good universities inventing things, the entrepreneurial spirit. So technology is very important for progress and growth. Uh, we have sensor technology now where Cisco says you can have 6,000 sensors in a home that measures and controls just about everything. When you move, where the sun is, what the cost of energy is, uh, you can have sensors for air quality and uh, whether it rained and how the soil is, if it's dry and needs irrigation. So technologies embedded in this. We uh, are also having cloud computing that comes into play where we can collect all the data. There's new products like Nest, which is a a thermostat that has robotics in it and is intelligent and um, can save a lot of energy just by knowing where you are and your patterns. Uh, we have new 
venture investments in capturing CO2 from coal plants and embedding it into concrete and Portland cement where you can sequester now like trees do in products and um, just innovations all over the place. We've got electrochromatic glass that can go from clear to almost dark and that saves energy, it boosts comfort. Uh, and venture capital is putting money in. Uh, even mainstream multi-billion dollar global leaders are always inventing new products. So technology is a very important partner in the transformation toolkit. But I might add it's not going to save us alone because technology already is pretty great and there's this human element of wasting, of, of being inefficient, of wanting more than we need, that hunger. And we need to, in our economic and political systems, and I believe now even in our neural network and our brain, we've got to start learning more that we are part of nature, that nature does not waste, and that our survival wiring of the past is killing us for the future. And we need to use our neural networks and plasticity to lay new neural networks in our brain so we actually can regenerate. Are you finding anywhere anymore any pushback to all of this, those that, that resist these changes? There's always pushback everywhere, unfortunately. Uh, in the early years, it felt like Sisyphus pushing the ball up the hill and it rolled right down. We have some more momentum now, and certainly it's moving towards mainstream. But even still, there are big trade organizations that are uh, fighting lead in every local government and state. They have huge lobbying budgets. They're, they have fear. They fear that our success lead success will impact their bottom line. And instead of seeing green as the best strategic weapon to boost profitability and, and have better employment and growth in employment, they fight it. And I'm just not a fan of fighting progress and change, especially where it's ensuring the survival of Earth. I think that should be the root of economic prosperity and fighting that you should lose money. Um, and, and, and they need to see the new way, and that kind of head-in-the-sand Luddite approach is just not going to work. And we see it in a number of these major institutes, the, the Chemistry Council, the Final Institute. We see it in the forestry industry. Those are the three biggest we're always fighting with. And it's time they just stop that approach and embrace change and they'll if they're really smart they'll see the billions and trillions of the future are in fresh water fresh air uh, good soil that can grow and buildings that are healthy and can generate their own power capture their own water and even treat it on site david gottfried his book is explosion green one man's journey to green the world's largest industry david i thank you so much for spending time with us today Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate your great questions, and uh, I certainly don't have all the answers, but I'm trying to, to play in, in a bigger game, a game of purpose and legacy uh, that, in the end, makes you more money. Thank you so much. David Gottfried, the book Explosion Green. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 